Let's pray. God in heaven, uh, thank you again very much for this evening, and we ask and pray that you would anoint and guide Pastor Tim as he presents tonight. Uh, help us to understand what is happening in our world. Help us to um, be ready for Jesus' soon return. Please guide us with your spirit as well as we hear this message tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. The role of Israel in the growing conflict. Some of these presentations, I like different ones for different reasons. All right? But this is a presentation that by the end of it, I'm always feeling happier. Some of them are a little bit challenging and sobering. This one ends up making me feel happy by the end of it. So that's a good one. Tomorrow night's is a good one for a very different reason, because it's about what's going on in our world. That doesn't always make me as happy. <laughs> okay. This one makes me happier. But the other one is very necessary as well. They're all, you know, they're pretty good, I think, anyway. So, anybody familiar with that picture? By now? Yes. Makes sense now, right? You get Jerusalem in the middle, and you get a north and a south. And they all want Jerusalem. Well, what we're looking at today, what is the role for Israel? The one caught in the middle. I just told you the role for Israel. It gets caught in the middle. <laughs> All right, now we'll talk about it, though, more than that. So, of the three conflicts, at the appointed time he shall return and go towards the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. Interestingly, in the former of the Crusades, papal king of the north has control of Jerusalem for about a hundred years. In the second one it doesn't, and in third one it does for a little bit at the end again. Notice, the second one is not like the first and the last. What's different about the second one? King of the north doesn't get control of Jerusalem during that time period. Uh, so that's just an interesting point. There's, Daniel has all these little details that get put in there. And they always fit. I was just sharing with a couple here in the back that I've been studying this thing for about 20 years now, and I'm still learning. Sometimes I'm reading along and I catch one of these little details and I go, oh, why didn't I see that before? <laughs> and sometimes it's when I'm talking to Hebrew scholars that I learn details that make a big difference. Now, Daniel eleven forty one and 45 is when it talks about Israel. In the, in the third conflict, it's in verse 41 and verse 45. It talks about Israel as the glorious land. When it says glorious land, it means Israel. All right? We're going to look at Old and New Testament information, and I'm going to show you that it is both geopolitical and global, religious. It happens literally in the land of Israel, but it is applied globally after the time of Christ. Interestingly, in Matthew 24, Jesus applies Daniel literally for what happens to Jerusalem, and then he gives it a global application to all his people of faith. I'm going to show you how that comes from the Bible, not just Jesus' statement. Daniel 11:41. He, the king of the north shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. Does that mean he overthrows Israel? Not necessarily. He enters Israel, and many countries are overthrown. Egypt and many countries in the context are overthrown. If you're paying attention to world events, current world events, you know Israel lives in a rather dangerous neighborhood. You have people all around Israel that have sworn to destroy Israel. You hear about the Palestinians. Are you aware that the Palestinians in their charter, and their government, in their charter, they have that they are going to destroy Israel and wipe them out of the whole land? That's why Israel has a hard time negotiating a peace deal with somebody who's vowed to destroy them. So when I look at this, I'm wondering, could it be that Israel just simply gets in lots of trouble and needs rescued? 
The problem of it is you can get rescued by the wrong person. And now you're even in worse trouble than you were before. That's what I'm suspicioning here. Let's look at the other verse, Daniel 11.45. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. <clears throat> Gets a little tricky in the Hebrew here. I am not a Hebrew scholar, but I talk to them a lot. Actually, the stuff that you hear from me, I have a very good biblical linguist, the head of a biblical languages department in a pretty big seminary, and a biblically arch- biblical archaeologist that feed me information all the time. We work together. And uh, so, what is this in the Hebrew? It could be either of two things. He will plant his tents or his movable headquarters either between the seas at the glorious holy mountain, in other words, between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea at the Temple Mount, or in Hebrew, the word seas in the plural can also mean the great one, which would be the Mediterranean, so it would be between the Mediterranean and the Temple Mount. Could be either one of those in the Hebrew. So which one is it? I've settled for this one. The king of the north will put his movable headquarters or temporary headquarters in or near Jerusalem. (laughs) And I'm ready for either one of them because I can't sort out which one it is. So the king of the north, papal-led Christianity, will set its headquarters in or near Jerusalem. I mean, that's what the Crusades were about. They wanted it. They still do. And if there is no solution to the crisis maybe, just maybe, the Pope would volunteer to take control and solve the problem. It would go along with that idea quite well. So whatever it is, he enters Israel and sets up his headquarters there. Let's just suppose that Canada and the United States were to get in a conflict. And the Canadians move their capital to Washington, D.C. Would that indicate the U.S. is doing good or bad? (laughs) Well, if the king of the north moves his capital to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's not doing so well in that event. Now, that's all we have in Daniel. But we've also noticed that sometimes we can go to Revelation and get more material to help us add to what Daniel has, right? So let's go to Revelation and see what it tells us about Israel. And it talks about Israel, especially with 144,000. It's in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. Let's begin with 7. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of who? Israel. Were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. 12 times 12,000 is 144,000. All right. Now, we go to Revelation 14 and we find them again. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing in Mount Zion and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. No one can learn that song except 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. Wow, that's a special group, isn't it? I mean, they've never even said anything wrong. I won't ask for hands, but how many of you could say you've never messed up in what something you said? <laughs> 
Yeah, that would be pretty special people, wouldn't it? Okay. We have some problems here, though. We have some missing or duplicated tribes. What do I mean? Well, we have three times that the tribes of Israel are given in a prophetic sense. Here we go. In Genesis 49. Well, this isn't so prophetic. This is just their birth order. All right. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, two prophetic listings. One is Ezekiel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi's gone, Manasseh takes his place. Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph is gone, Ephraim is there, Benjamin. Why is it not the same? Well, we've lost Levi and Joseph, but Joseph's two sons that are half-tribes are now listed as whole tribes. Now, you remember what's different about the one in Revelation that we just read? You mean your memory doesn't last that well? How is the Revelation list different? Well, here we go. Levi's back. Manasseh can't have that spot, but Dan's gone, so Manasseh gets that one. Ephraim is gone. Joseph is back. Hmm. Why is it that in this prophetic listing, they're different? I'm wondering if God is telling us to look a little deeper. And that's what we're going to do. There are some other problems, though. There's an even 12,000 regardless of tribe. Why is that a problem? If you look at any of the censuses in the children of Israel, some tribes were large and some tribes were small. You better hope you're in a little tribe because you've got a much higher percentage chance of getting in that special group. God doesn't work that way typically, does he? So what's going on? And there's an even, you know, even 12,000. And they're all virgins. And sorry, ladies, they're all male virgins. I said that one day, and a lady spoke up, and it said, yeah, but it said they're without guile, and they've never spoken deceit. She says, I've never met them yet. <laughs> I've never forgotten that lady's comment. <laughs> And she's right. She was right. As a matter of fact, there is only one person in history that matches that description. And it's Jesus. He is the only one that matches. So is it possible that we're dealing with some symbolism? Remember, we are dealing with the book of Revelation. Would you believe that there could be some symbols in the book of Revelation? If there's not, Jesus is a dead, woolly lamb on the throne in heaven. Because it calls him the lamb, the slain lamb on the throne, right? Except that dead lamb is doing things. So it's obviously not a dead lamb. (laughs) But it had died. Jesus has died and resurrected and he's on the throne for us now, right? Yeah, definite definite symbolism here. So keep that in mind because in chapter 1 of Revelation, it said the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. He put it in symbolic form. It was a revelation, but it was symbolic. So you got to think about it. Lots of people are interested in the book of Daniel and Revelation because of the symbolism. You know, kids like cartoons and adults like like cartoons often, right? So God basically put some of the prophecy in the cartoon format with all these interesting, strange animals and creatures and stuff to try and get people thinking. Well... What about Israel in the New Testament? Can it help us understand the symbolism in Revelation? And yes, there is some spectacular stuff here. Galatians chapter 3. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith 
preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. An Israelite is part of the Abrahamic family, right? But can you be an Israelite? Well, you can be blessed through Abraham. Let's keep going. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So ladies, you still have a shot at it. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you have faith in Jesus, you're a part of the Abrahamic family. Romans 9, 6 through 8. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as seed. It's not your genetics. It's your faith that counts on whether or not you're a real Israelite. They're not all Israel that are of Israel. Not every Israelite is an Israelite. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Romans 10, 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. I don't like writing. My wife tells me I shouldn't say that, but it's the truth. But God has made me write out a lot of stuff over the years. But the first, I went to college, and I got this freshman comp paper, right? In English class. And I didn't want to do a paper. And I thought, I better pick something I really like or I'm never going to get this done. And so I picked a comparison of what different Christians teach on the return of Christ. That was a freshman in college. So I already had an interest in prophecy and history way back then, obviously, right? And as I was researching for that, I'm reading through books, and I'm reading a book, and it says there is a distinction, there is a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. God deals with them differently. And then I turned over to my Bible, and I read, and there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And I remember going, well, I guess this book doesn't match the Bible. And, you know, over the years, I've learned to do that a lot as I read through things. I've just, I keep thinking, okay, what Bible verses talk about the same thing I'm reading in this book? So there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Romans 11. I love this one. I say then, have they, speaking of Israel, stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save how many of them? Some of them. When he's talking about Israel of the flesh... Jewish people, genetic Jewish people, he's hoping to save some of them. Keep reading. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. 
for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of an olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so how much of Israel will be saved? All. A little bit ago it was some, and now it's all. Hmm. I get to illustrate it for a bit. I'm an olive tree for a bit. I am so glad I'm not stuck in one place for my whole life. (laughs) But anyway, an olive tree. And I only have two branches to use right now, but suppose it has a whole bunch of them, right? When Jesus came onto the scene in his earthly ministry, did every Jewish person or every Israelite have faith in him? No. Did some of them? Yes. So some of the branches are broken off for unbelief. Some of them are still there. However, some Gentiles have faith in Jesus and they get grafted in and they do really well and they're bearing fruit. And you've got these Jewish branches that were broken off that are laying on the ground and they're going, what's that Gentile doing in my spot? They're being blessed. Maybe I should consider accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And when they do, they do really good because they're a natural fit into the olive tree. But notice, we have some Jewish branches, we have some Gentile branches, And then we get more Jewish branches and we get more Gentile branches. But there are still some Jewish branches on the ground. There are still some Gentile branches on the wild olive tree. But every branch connected to God's tree is now saved. Thus all Israel, everybody of faith is saved. Those without faith, wild olive and pruned off, are lost. Some of the genetic ones will be saved. But once all the Gentiles of faith come in, then all Israel is saved, Jew and Gentile. Now get this, that's exactly what we find happening in Revelation. Uh, Let's go to Revelation 7. He hears about the 144,000 and then he sees them. I heard the number of those who were sealed. He did not see them yet. It's 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. I'm not reading through that list again. All right? But the 12,000, 12,000. And uh, then as soon as you're done with the list, he says, after these things, I look. He heard about them. Now he sees them. And what does he see? I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Huh. They're white robes. How do you get white robes? You're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Oh, there's only one person who ever matched the description of the 144,000. That's Jesus. But when you're washed in the blood of the Lamb, your record in heaven is the same as whose? Jesus. Oh, that's neat. Well, let me back up to that for a bit. So, if Israel is symbolic for everybody who trusts in God, just like it is with the olive tree, Jew and Gentile, it is a great multitude that nobody can number. The 144,000 is a symbolic number, talking about a symbolic group that is really a huge group. And that should not be a surprise in Revelation. Of everyone at the end of time, who is trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I want to be a part of that group, trusting in him. Now, let's go back to Deuteronomy. Because there are people that are thinking, yeah, but God gave promises to the nation of Israel that must be fulfilled to the nation of Israel. You know, like, prophecy is history written in advance. Have you ever heard that one? So have I. But what if I show you places where it says, God says in the Bible, 
that there are certain things about the nation of Israel that will not be fulfilled to them. So I can stick with what the book tells me that it must be fulfilled to the nation of Israel, but in the Bible, I find it says where it won't be. That's interesting. Let's take a look. Deuteronomy. That's back when the nation of Israel is being established, isn't it? So let's take a look at what it says. I love this stuff. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obeyed the voice of the Lord your God. Now, if they were obedient to God, blessings would overtake them. Can you see the picture? It doesn't matter how, run, how fast you run, you're going to be overwhelmed with blessings. You can't outrun the blessings. They're going to catch up to you from behind. (laughs) I mean, can you picture somebody complaining? It doesn't matter what I do. I mean, I've been trusting the Lord and just everything, I just keep being blessed over and over and over. Man, it's just overwhelming. It's, (laughs) it wouldn't be wonderful to be overwhelmed that way. (laughs) But is the next word. All of a sudden, you've got a change of attitude here, don't you? Change of meaning. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So you have a choice of being overwhelmed by blessings or overwhelmed by curses. Was there a guarantee that they would get all the blessings? Nope. Was there a guarantee they'd get all the curses? Nope. It depended on how they chose to trust or not trust in God. By the way, it's still true for you. So, all these promises given to the nation of Israel were conditional. Oh, let's go where God directly says that. Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah, go to the house of the potter. So let's go there. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Who's he talking to? Pretty clear, isn't it? Israel. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and pull it down and destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. There's God flat out saying, if I predict good for you and you're evil, you won't get the good. If I predict I'm going to wipe you out and you turn to me, I won't wipe you out. Is that a guarantee? that everything he said about Israel will be fulfilled? Nope. It's exactly the opposite. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah said that the Babylonians were coming to invade. What's he saying now? God has predicted good for you and he's predicted invasion for you. It's going to be up to you which one you get. Right now, you're going to be invaded. You better change. Because if you don't, you're going to get wiped out. They didn't change. But is it possible for God to say he's going to wipe somebody out and not do it? Ever heard of the story of Jonah? (laughs) Jonah is told by God that he's supposed to go to Nineveh and tell them that in 40 days, they're going to be destroyed. And Jonah says, yes, Lord, that's a wonderful idea. Why don't you just do that? I don't like the people of Nineveh. But I'm not going to go tell them. You just start the clock and destroy them anyway. How about that? Why would he have an attitude like that? Because the people of Nineveh were killing Israelites all the time, torturing them. They would just take over a village and they'd cut off a bunch of heads and leave them stacked by the gate to remind you, as you saw your relative's head sitting there, don't mess with the people of Nineveh. They had a worse way of doing it. What's worse? They'd put a spear in the ground, point up. 
and they'd take several of your living friends and pick one after another and slide them down the spear and you'd watch your living shish kebab friends die in front of you. Get an idea why Jonah might say, okay, Lord, go ahead and do it. Wipe them out. But I'm going down to the water. You want me to go up to the northeast? I'm going west. I'm getting out of here. And he gets on a ship. He goes down below deck so he can hide. (laughs) You're going to hide from God. What did God say? If you don't obey me, it doesn't matter how how fast you run or how far you run, the curses will catch up to you from behind. He's down there and the storm hits. And the sailors start praying to their gods and they wake up Jonah and say, man, you better pray to your God. And he said, it wouldn't do any good. Why not? My God told me the Nineveh and I'm going the opposite way. Your God talks to you? Yes, I serve the real God. He's not like your rocks, your idols. Your God talks to you and you're not obeying him? No, why don't you guys just throw me overboard? It'd be a lot better for you. No, they're nicer than Jonah. (laughs) They throw all kinds of other stuff overboard and the storm gets worse. And Jonah said, I told you, throw me overboard. And finally, okay, if you say so, they grab him and they throw him overboard. And as they throw him overboard, the storm just stops. (laughs) Giant fish swallows Jonah. Can you just picture these pagan sailors standing along the side of the ship going, wow, do not mess with Jonah's God. Meanwhile, Jonah is in the belly of a very large sea creature, fish, whale, whatever it was. Have you thought about what that would be like in that not-so-nice submarine ride? Ever been around somebody that threw up? That's what he's in. You talk about a bad hair day? His skin and his hair is getting digested. He's getting a massage. (laughs) But that massage is all about breaking you down to digest you. This is not a wonderful ride in a submarine. And it records his prayer. At one point it says, Oh Lord, how long will I be here forever? I mean, the first couple of seconds would start seeming like forever to me. And at some point, Jonah's going, Lord, if you got me out of here, I'd even go to Nineveh. God says, fish, head to shore. Three days in a fish is plenty long. Spits him out. Jonah washes off best he can. My guess his skin doesn't look quite so good anymore after three days in stomach acids. And he heads for Nineveh. I don't think he takes a detour because he doesn't want to meet a lion. And he gets to Nineveh. It says it's a three-day journey across the town by foot. And so he starts on one side of town and he starts preaching 40 days, 39 days, 38 days. He takes a turn, goes down another street. He's zigzagging back and forth through this town. Somewhere along the line, somebody says, Jonah, you look kind of funny. What happened to you? He said, I argued with God. God put me in the belly of a fish for three days. And by the way, in 27 days, he's going to burn you to toast because of the way you're living. And they looked at him and they believed it. (laughs) And eventually, every last person in the city has confessed their sins and asked God to forgive them. But at the end of 40 days, Jonah goes up on a mountain or a hill overlooking the city and he sits down and he says, okay, Lord, I did my job. It's the 40th day. Burn them all. And the sun comes up and there's no fire except Jonah's getting really hot. He's mad. God, you said 40 days, preach it. I preached it. Now it's up to you. You burn them. You said you would burn them. You must burn them now. And it's getting hotter. The sun's getting hot and he's getting madder. And all of a sudden, a little plant grows up beside him. (laughs) Shade. Thank you, Lord. Plant falls over. He looks down. There is a worm that just chewed off the bottom of that plant. He says, Lord, it's no fair. You let that worm kill the plant. And God says, Jonah, what's wrong with you? You care more about that plant than you care about a whole city full of people. I mean, you think about this. An evangelist goes out and every last person in the city was converted and accepts Jesus or God as their Lord and Savior. And you know what? 
the evangelist is ticked off at how successful it was. At the end of the book of Jonah, what we know is the people of of Nineveh were converted, but we're not so sure about Jonah, except the book of Jonah was written by a guy by the name of Jonah. If you wrote a book like that about yourself, it would indicate that you'd actually been converted or you wouldn't make yourself look that bad. (laughs) You know what else we know? That the Islamic State a few years ago blew up part of the tomb of Jonah in Nineveh. Jonah spent the rest of his life ministering to the people of Nineveh. He was converted too. But doesn't it illustrate? God said, I'll destroy him in 40 days. They confessed their sins and they were not destroyed at the end of those 40 days. You better praise the Lord for that because the wages of your sin is death. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness and he'll take the penalty for you. I'm glad God's willing to do that. How about you? I was preaching, sharing this story in northern Nigeria in Boko Haram territory. That's radical Muslims where they killed two to 3,000 Christians per year. And I told them that story. And then I looked at them and said, if God asks you to go to Raqqa and share the gospel with the Islamic State, would you want to go? Raqqa is just outside of Nineveh, where it was the capital of the Islamic State. And all of a sudden, these preachers, a hundred of them that I was teaching Daniel 11 to, they looked at each other and went, "Uh uh-oh. They were laughing about Jonah and stuff, and all of a sudden they realized it was them that the story's about. And these guys told me the most important thing they learned, it was time to stop hating Muslims and start loving them. For Jesus. Can God say he's going to destroy something or say he's going to bless something and then change. Jeremiah 18, flat out, God says, that's exactly what he can do. Matthew 18. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven. So Peter's being generous. He'll forgive his brother seven times, but he's counting because on number eight, it's coming, man. He's going to get him. And that is Peter's nature. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, it's not seven times. It's 70 times seven. By the way, where does that number come from? Daniel chapter nine. How long is God going to put up with what Israel's doing? From the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince, 69 weeks. Three and a half weeks into it, the Messiah the Prince will be cut off in in, in sacrifice and offerings. And then the gospel goes to the Gentile world. How long are you supposed to put up with something? And God says, Peter, Jesus says it's 490 years. You're not going to live 490 years, are you, Peter? Then don't bother counting. However, God lives more than 490 years. And only God knows when somebody's gone too far. We don't. We're not the judge. Eventually, God destroyed Nineveh. But it wasn't at the end of those 40 days. Where did he get that idea? The 70-week prophecy. I just mentioned that. Here's what's interesting. When Jesus is baptized, Mark 1, 15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. What time? Daniel's prophecy. When he's headed towards the cross, he says, my time is at hand. How does he know this stuff? Well, there's a Bible prophecy. He's walking right through it. And, you know, 
earlier in his ministry, they said they were going to kill Jesus. And he said, my time is not yet. And he goes to Jerusalem. This time he's going to Jerusalem and they have the triumphal entry. They say, yeah, they're going to make him king. He says, no, I'm going to die. Obviously, he doesn't go by public opinion. He's trusting prophecy instead. And when he's resurrected, uh, he tells the disciples, go first to Jerusalem, Judea, then to the rest of the world because there was still that time period between the cross and here for the Jews to decide if they wanted to stay in or get broken off. After that, you can graft in Jews or Gentiles and you can graft in Jews, but they're all into his Israel of faith. Somebody says, are you talking about replacement theology? No, I'm talking additional theology because God's Israel has always been there that was of faith. And now he's adding Gentiles in in a spectacular way. So it's additional. Saul is sent as an apostle to the Gentiles at the end of the time period. Now, the house of God has some interesting stuff about Gentiles in Israel too. Take a look at Isaiah 56. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Also the sons of the foreigner who joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant... Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for Jews only. No, for all nations. God was always willing to accept people of other nations in if they had faith in him. As a matter of fact, there was Rahab, the prostitute on the city walls of Jericho, had faith in the God of Israel, became such a good Israelite that she became an ancestor of David and of Jesus Christ. There was Ruth the Moabitess, who had faith in the God of Israel, became such a good Israelite that she was an ancestor of David and of Jesus Christ. God's always been ready to graft Gentiles into his people, his Israel of faith. Now, let's continue the siege, how Jesus deals with Israel and the house of God. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changer and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Can you just picture this? Children are praising God in church and the church leaders are angry. Jesus, make these kids be quiet. I'm just going to tell you, if kids are actually praising God in church, do not shut them down. Jesus was enjoying it. (sighs) All right. Now that doesn't mean chaos and just shouting about what they did during the week or whatever else. This is about excited about Jesus. I mean, Jesus just healed a little boy or a little girl. Are they supposed to tip out, tiptoe outside before they jump up and down and say thank you? Or can they jump up and down and say thank you to God in church? <laughs> Jesus was enjoying it. By the way, reverence doesn't mean silence. It means appropriate response. Sometimes reverence is silence. Sometimes reverence is joyfully praising God. If you're silent when you should be joyfully praising God, there's a problem. And if you're making noise when you should be silent, there's a problem too. But reverence is doing the appropriate response at the appropriate time. Okay? So Jesus tells them a story. Now, when Jesus tells a story, it's got a literal application usually when he's telling a parable, right? But it's got a much deeper spiritual application. Which one's the really important one? The deeper spiritual one, right? By the way, Daniel chapter 11 has a literal application about Israel. It has a deeper spiritual application for God's Israel of faith all over the world. Watch how Jesus tells the story. 
Oh, because the leaders weren't paying close attention, they end up condemning themselves to death because they weren't paying attention to the deeper level. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son, but when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? This is their time that they should have stopped and thought before they said anything. But it was so simple, they decided to answer without thinking. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. The olive tree, who is his Israel? Any Jew or Gentile that's trusting in Jesus Christ. Revelation, who is his Israel? A great multitude from every nation, tribe, and people who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's his Israel of faith. A few days later, Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. A couple of days before, he'd gone into the temple and he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. He acted like it was his house. He drove them out. You don't usually drive somebody out of their house. You drive them out of your house if you don't like their behavior. Right? So he cleans the temple, claims it's his house. Now, just a couple of days later, he says, your house is left to you desolate. When Jesus was in it, it was his house. He's now left it for the last time. And he says, your house is desolate. You see, it doesn't matter what kind of church you have, how beautiful it is, if Jesus isn't in it, it's desolate. It can be a shack, but if Jesus is in it, it's a wonderful house of God. It's all about Jesus, friends. It always has been. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ephesians 2. Wonderful chapter. Tells us we're saved by faith, not of works, but that's not what I'm looking at right now. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. I am a Gentile in the flesh. And some of you are going with a name like Rosenberg. Are you sure? That's what we used to think. We figured our great-grandmother told us we were really Gentiles, not Jews, because, well... In Europe, it wasn't such a good idea to be Jewish. And my father immigrated to the United States with his family in 1921. So there was a history there that you didn't want to be Jewish, and we always figured great-grandmother was just covering some stuff up for safety reasons. But I had a cousin that was doing genealogy studies and she wanted a male Rosenberg in the family to take a DNA test. It was an earlier DNA test. It was just a rule in being Jewish or not. And she could take the one for the female. I took it and it came back that great-grandmother was right. We're not Jewish. I don't know if somebody got adopted or what, but whatever. (laughs) We're not Jewish. So I am a Gentile in the flesh. All right? Just scientifically, that's what I am. That at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. I wasn't an Israelite. I'm an alien. And strangers from the covenants of promise, ooh, having no hope and without God in the world. But 
now in Christ Jesus. Oh, the word but usually changes things, doesn't it? I was without hope, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the what? Blood of Christ. And the great multitude are washed in the blood of the Lamb. I've been brought near. I was a stranger. I was an alien of the commonwealth of Israel, but now I've been brought near. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. Citizens of what? The commonwealth of Israel. In context. And citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple. His holy temple is really the people. You call it his Israel, call it his church, call it whatever you want, but it's his people, not the building in Jerusalem. In the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What's the temple of the Holy Spirit? You and I and the body of Christ, the church, the believers, God's Israel. So, I look at the situation. In the Old Testament, Israel was promised a land. It was Canaan. They were promised a city. It was Jerusalem. They were promised a temple there on the Temple Mount. But in the New Testament, God says, oh, the land, that's heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. The city, it's a new Jerusalem, and that one flies, friends. That's going to be better than a 777. Or a 747. Dreamliners are kind of cool when you're doing an oceanic flight. But nothing compared to a flying city. A temple. It's a heavenly temple with a heavenly high priest, Jesus himself. And the believer in the church become his temple. Wow. Did you just notice that for God's New Testament believers, his Israel of faith, the promises get bigger and better? What they were promised back here and didn't get completely, we now get them bigger and better. It's like God says, if somebody's going to make me wait to fulfill the promises, I'm going to save it up with compounded interest, and it's going to be better than you could ever dream. In other words, God isn't, isn't stingy. He's very generous. And if you make him wait, when he's able to give it, it's going to be better than ever. Because he's been saving it up. Now, so God's promises get bigger and better, but I know some people that say, oh, at the end, some people are going to be saved by works. Jewish people and Gentile Christians are going to be saved by faith. Except Ephesians 2 also said not only were Gentiles Israelites, it also said nobody saved by works. To me, nobody actually means nobody. Everyone's saved by faith. As a matter of fact, if some people say Old Testament Israelites were saved by works and by keeping the law, I've got a problem with that. Hebrews 11, called the faith chapter, has a whole long list of people that were all saved by faith, and they're all from the Old Testament. Not one of them was saved by works. You see, Old Testament people were saved by faith in a coming Messiah. We're saved by faith in a Messiah that's already been here and is coming again. If anything, Old Testament believers had more faith than New Testament believers because we have more to go on. We're all saved by faith. There's no other way to be saved. So, believers in Christ are the New Testament people of Israel, both Jew and Gentile. Now let's go back to this one. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Oh, the predictions of God. It's not that they've been inaccurate. It's not that they were not effectual. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Not every Israelite was faithful. That's why they weren't fulfilled the way they were first written. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, genetic Israelites, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as seed. Any Jew or Gentile that's trusting in Jesus is God's true Israel. You see, I was born a Gentile, but by faith I stand before you, an Israelite. And Jesus is my king, and he's the Davidic king. And if Jesus is the Davidic king and he's my king, what am I? An Israelite. There's no other way around it. 
So you have the choice of being an Israelite, of being a part of the 144,000. Now in the Old Testament, God's bride was Old Testament Israel. In the New Testament, Ephesians 5, it's those who are trusting in Jesus. In the Old well, in Revelation 12, we have this lady dressed in white, it's kind of his bride. But in verses 1 through 6, it's Old Testament Israel before the birth of Jesus. Verses 13 through 17, it's after Jesus' resurrection. But I want you to notice something. It's the same bride, the same lady in white. Old and New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, when God's Israel wasn't faithful to him, he called him a harlot. In the New Testament, when God's church isn't faithful to him, he calls him a what? A harlot. When his bride isn't faithful, they're committing spiritual adultery, harlotry. Old and New Testament, he applies it the same way. Remember when we looked at Barna's research, only five out of 100 Christians are born again with a biblical worldview, which means the majority of them are the harlot variety. That's why in Revelation, you have the great harlot and her daughters that are all practicing harlotry because they're not really trusting in God. Five out of 100 isn't very many, folks. But that's what we've got. But there's always a remnant. In the Old Testament, there was a group. In the New Testament, there's a group, that five out of 100. God's got a remnant that he comes out of traditional papal-led Christianity. He's got a remnant that he's going to pull out of Islam. And you know what? We just read that there's a remnant in Israel because some of them get grafted back in. God's got people in all kinds of places. All kinds of places. He's working in hearts everywhere. So, I want to take a look at something. 144,000 were sealed on their foreheads. Jeremiah 31. It's the new covenant. I believe this sealing is speaking about the new covenant. By the way, some people say they don't need the Old Testament because they're New Covenant believers. I find that almost hilarious. Because without the Old Testament, you don't have the New Covenant because the New Covenant was given in the Old Testament. (laughs) Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of... (laughs) The house of who? If you're a New Covenant believer, you're an Israelite. That's the New Covenant. You accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're a citizen of the commonwealth of Israel, Jew or Gentile. Keep going. And with the house of Judah, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will put it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's not an external thing. God makes a change inside of us in the new covenant. Jesus cleanses us of sin and the Holy Spirit comes in and changes us from the inside out. That's what he promises for his Israel. And if you become a part of his Israel, guess where you're going to get caught in this conflict? Just like Jerusalem in the middle. So you need to understand this prophecy. It was repeated in Hebrews 8. So God's last day people from all nations are trusting in Christ and obeying him. That's what it says in Revelation, who are keeping the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you don't have Jesus, keeping God's commandments is totally worthless because you've never kept them good enough to be saved anyway. If you've blown it one time, you will never ever be good enough to make it into heaven on your own. There's only one way, and that's in Jesus. And he takes me as a Gentile with no hope, but now in Christ Jesus, everything's good. This is why I always feel good by the time I get to the end of this one. It reminds me that everything's good even if I've messed it up before. (laughs) Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Yeah. So we have a land of Israel, and the land of Israel gets caught in the middle. But everyone who accepts Jesus by faith are God's true Israel, and they get caught in the middle. 
So we have the geopolitical, the land of Israel gets caught in the middle, but a global religious application, God's Israel of faith everywhere, is caught in the middle too. Now, watch how this applies. During the Crusades, the papacy controls Israel and the church. They had the land of Israel, they had the church in that period. In the second one, they lost control of the land of Israel, and because of the Reformation, they lost control of the church. In the third one, at the end of it, in the end of the third conflict, they will once again have the land of Israel and Revelation says and all the world follows them. Do you notice how it's both the literal and the global? Literal, global, literal, global. That's how Jesus interpreted Daniel in Matthew 24. And it works in history. The prophecy and history match this way. So, as the land of Israel gets caught in the middle, so will God's people with faith get caught in the middle. And in the next two presentations, you will more clearly understand how God's people with faith get caught in the middle. So it doesn't matter what you look like. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he begins to change you from the inside out and people begin to see more and more of Jesus and less and less of you. It doesn't matter what your background is. Together, we represent Jesus Christ to the world as he changes us. What do you need to remember? Yeah, basically, the land of Israel gets caught in the middle. But so do God's people of faith. And if we trust in Jesus, we can all be this Israel. And we get those blessings bigger and better than they were even originally promised. Isn't that special? God is awesome. All right, our next presentation is the role of Islam in the growing conflict. If you can get any extra people to come in here, we have a few extra spots. Thanks to these guys, we actually had somebody in the second row tonight. Good. <laughs> Let's see if we can fill it up to the front row next time. <laughs> and uh, so, tomorrow night, the role of Islam in the growing conflict. You know, you might have people who think God's word doesn't apply to today. I'd encourage you to get them here tomorrow because they're going to walk away from him going, maybe we're watching prophecy fulfilled right in front of our eyes right now. Maybe I should start thinking about taking God seriously. So even if they're not a Bible-leaning person, see if you can get them to come tomorrow. All right? Uh, it kind of gets their attention. And even if they're a Muslim, bring them. Muslims tend to like this presentation. They don't agree completely with it, but they like most of it. If you would, pull out your response envelope, put a number four up there. That's for presentation number four. Yes, no, or question. In Daniel 11, Israel is both geopolitical and religious. It applies to the land of Israel, but it also applies to God's people of faith all over. Yes, no, or question. Number two. All who follow Christ are God's Israel and citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. All who follow Christ are God's Israel and citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. Number three, yes, no, or question mark. All God's promises get bigger and better for his Israel of faith. All God's promises get bigger and better. And number four, I choose to be a part of God's Israel of faith. It's your choice. Yes, it will put you in the middle but it's in the middle with Jesus. And at the end of this prophecy, we find out Jesus rescues his people in the middle. It's the only truly safe place to be. All right. Oh, I need to share one other thought. I am committed to this church for each evening through Sunday night. I'm also committed to this church for Saturday morning. However, that's not all my day. And if there is some other group, be it a church or any other group, that would like me to present during the daytime, when I'm not committed here, I'm very willing to go anywhere 
no fee. I'm already here. Just go and share this message and I will adjust it based on how much time I'm given. And, you know, that means Sunday morning, I could do a Sunday school or a worship service or something like that as well. And if you know a church that would like to have me, happy to do it. It's always a lot of fun for me. Now, some churches I have an idea of what their theology is. Others I don't. So I walk in, do a non-denominational presentation, but I might step on the hidden landmines in a church because each one has them. and I don't know where they are. But I've learned long ago that when I do that, they don't get mad at me. They start arguing with each other. Because <laughs> they know I don't understand. <laughs> Whoops, sorry about that, folks. You know. But no, uh, you can... If there is a church that's interested in that, I actually have a DVD of something similar to what I would present that you could share with a pastor because if it's a decent pastor, they're going to want to know what it's going to be about before they let it happen. (laughs) And uh, so I have a DVD that could be shared with a pastor if you have an interest in that. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for cleansing us from sin through Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that changes from the inside out. And thank you that um, though almost every one of us was born a Gentile or even an unbelieving Israelite, that by faith we can all become a true Israelite with Jesus as our King. Thank you. Help us to be the citizens you want us to be of your true Israel. In Jesus' name I ask it and I thank you. Amen.